Good day. I said good day. Today is your day for your next Tech Law 10 podcast. We're now at number 156, so hopefully you've joined us on all the prior 155, if you will, and, and going forward as well. Uh, this is Eric Sinrod at the Dwayne Morris Law Firm. I'm joined by my faithful and loyal colleague, Jonathan Armstrong at Quartery. And Jonathan had, and I have this way of understanding how each other thinks. And so I'm now reading into your brain and believing you're going to enlighten us with respect to the subject access request system. Am I right? That's a very good, Professor Sinrod. Yes, very, very good indeed. And uh, yeah, it's something that we're seeing more and more of. And it's, in some respects, an obscure part of data protection legislation. But uh, trust me, it is worth spending just the odd moment on. And, and basically, uh, the system exists in European data protection law for an individual to ask an organization the data the organization holds on him or her. Now, originally, the idea was it enabled people to correct their record. So, for example, it was used by people who'd had a, uh, a, a, um, a customer credit default entered against their record. They could ask to see the record, and they could say, actually, I wasn't that John Smith slash John Doe, for American ears, uh, who was resident at that address, and I can't get credit because you're mistaking me with that guy. However, the legislation wasn't drafted so narrowly. And in most countries, there's a real rise in using these subject access requests to get a whole host of information. So, for example, uh, on Saturday, I telephoned a well-known airline. I don't think the call was handled very well. The call operative, I thought, was patronizing and insulting. So I make a subject access request to get a copy of the transcript of that call. And why I'm doing that is just really to get somebody else to listen to that call and see if they're truly proud of what their employee said on their behalf. Other people are using subject access requests to get a whole host of litigation, and sometimes coupled with other uh, rights, like the right to be forgotten. And, and but the volume of subject access requests is increasing phenomenally, and most organizations find it really hard to deal with them. Uh, for example, uh, we're involved in one recently where the client has spent probably about 200 man hours answering a subject access request. And in exchange for those 200 man hours, they get the grand fee of 10 pounds. Uh, I, I know on the current currency rate, that's about I think about $2,000, isn't it? Um, uh, between $15 and $2,000 anyway. And um, so companies don't get rewarded for this effort. Uh, now, why this is a particular issue is A, because subject access request, requests are on the rise. B, because even that small fee will be abolished by the new EU rules. So companies have to get good systems in place to deal with a much higher volume of complaints uh, or subject access requests. 
and uh, C, because there has been some recent litigation. There's been quite a few cases. We haven't got time to go through them all. But some cases in the UK have turned on a discretion that exists in the UK legislation. So basically, if I send a subject access request to an organization, if they don't reply within 40 days, I've got two things I can do. I can complain to the Information Commissioner, that's the UK data regulator, and or I can complain to the court and ask a judge for an order making the organization comply. I can do both in parallel if I wish. And this, uh, in the UK, the judge, if I complain to a judge, has a discretion not to make the order. If, for example, he thinks that there's an ulterior uh, litigation motive, or he thinks I ought to be entitled to the data because it wouldn't be in public, uh, you know, in the public interest to do so. For example, there are cases involving a prison where uh, informants. Uh, data shouldn't be disclosed and they could be identified, things like that. And there are various exceptions in the legislation as well. However, some of these UK cases were cited recently in an Irish case. And in the Irish case, the, case, the court said, firstly, this exemption or this uh, ability for a judge to refuse to make an order doesn't exist in Irish legislation. But here's the rub. Secondly, they said it doesn't exist because it's a wrong interpretation of the original EU directive. So the UK has misapplied the uh, Data Protection Act. Now, sounds very technical, but why would it matter? Well, I think it matters because if they're right, anybody that's what's called an emanation of the state probably can't get relief from a court. So they have to provide information if the court uh, order is requested. The judge has no discretion if that's right. And that means that a whole host of bodies like health trusts, local authorities, central government uh, have to give more and more data out on request. And that is also likely to have a domino effect on private organizations as well, because obviously if I'm a contractor, I do the cleaning services for an NHS trust, the NHS trust probably has to give the information and the contractor probably is, is in a difficult position if it tries to refuse as well. So I know it's a slightly more obscure topic, certainly one that isn't in the news as much as Ashley Madison, which we've uh, you done. Did it. You did it. I was going to compliment you. I was going to compliment you going and giving so much content without mentioning Ashley Madison. I know. Well, I, I did. You couldn't, you couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. I was almost there. Um, but, 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 but it's my prediction. Uh, because it's right that on these podcasts we talk about the past and we predict the future. It's my prediction that this is going to be one of the big issues to look out for in the next <laughs> 12 or 18 months. And it won't be as consequential as Ashley Madison for most companies, but it's still going to take up an awful lot of their time if they don't invest in systems now. Well, and with that, you can talk about Ashley Madison. <laughs> I literally was going to jump in and say, Jonathan, so much content. Thank you. And you actually avoided for us not talking about Ashley Madison for the first time in a month. But nope, couldn't resist. So I, before I respond, I just want to make sure I understand. Can you give us very briefly one clear, concise example 
of how this would work. Uh, you know, the, what would be the, a typical request and a typical response? Because you gave so much content there, but I just want to make sure we're very clear on what we're talking about. A, a very typical request at the moment is from failed job applicants. So let's say I advertise for a position for a new office manager at Cordry. I get 100 applicants. Uh, one person gets the job. Some of the remaining 99 almost certainly will send a subject access request saying, I want to see your interview notes, Armstrong. I want to see why I didn't get the job and the other guy did. Now, sometimes that's because people genuinely want feedback on how they performed an interview. Sometimes it's because there's an ulterior motive, like they're going to bring a discrimination claim. Uh, very commonly at this time of year, it's uh, students asking to see their exam papers and how they were marked by an examiner, whether that be at a university or a school as they're getting their results. And again, the ICO has specific guidance. The UK data regulator has specific guidance on its website of how students can make these requests because the volume is considerable, very difficult for examination bodies to deal with at this time of year. So, so they're very common in an employment environment, very common with an aggrieved consumer these days, very common uh, with students. Okay, now I can respond. Thank you. Um, it sounds potentially enormously burdensome, um, and let me explain why from my standpoint. You know, in our country, the federal government, for example, under our Freedom of Information Act statute, must provide information requested of it by our citizens unless uh, one of nine narrow exemptions applies. So the federal government, you know, frequently is inundated with all sorts of requests for information. Frankly, now that things are computerized, a lot of it's now put online and made available uh, for our citizens just to see without having to make requests. But still, uh, it's very burdensome for the government, but important because an enlightened citizenry, as our Supreme Court has held, needs to know what the federal government is up to. A government that's unchecked can wield power uh, inappropriately. That's the government context. Then we also have our civil, our civil litigation system. And once you're in civil litigation, uh, we have discovery. And discovery of information from the opposing side and even third parties is broadly construed Anything relevance is determined to be anything that could lead to the discovery of admissible evidence. So what you're requesting doesn't even have to be admissible evidence. So we know in our country, once you get involved in litigation, sometimes the discovery effort almost makes the legal uh, dispute not worth uh, addressing, which sometimes leads to uh, quick mediations and alternative dispute resolution. But the litigation can be extremely burdensome. We have to put litigation holds in place so that information that's normally, uh, you know, businesses have uh, data retention policies and certain data will roll out and no longer be preserved over certain time periods unless required to be um, held pursuant to regulatory uh, rules, etc. But once you're in litigation, you have to hold anything that potentially could be relevant, which again is a burdensome process. And what you seem to be suggesting now is that uh, and if this were to be extrapolated to the United States, and I don't hear that mm -hmm. to be the case yet, right? But if it were, if we were to put it in our context, not only would the federal government have to respond to information requests short of litigation, not only would there be broad discovery 
uh, in litigation, that but potentially under this regime, regime of subject access, excuse me, subject access request, the regime of the subject access request system, people can be making all sorts of data requests to companies absent litigation, absent a subpoena, um, and boy, oh boy, I mean, it just sounds to me like it could really gum up the ultimate mission of a company in terms of what it's trying to do, in terms of the goods and services it's providing and the value it's trying to create for the shareholders. Um, that's yeah. not to say, that, and this is to finish the point, it's not to say that mm. you know, it's possible. It, it is possible. You know, the, the job applicant that doesn't get the job might have actually been discriminated against, and somehow there might need to be some forum to, to figure that out. Um, but it might be the type of thing that where there's actually, you know, normally here, it would be uh, there'd be an investigation and then litigation and then discovery, as opposed to uh, data uh, requests and requirements short of that. Uh, is what I'm saying to you making sense? It absolutely makes sense. And there are checks and balances that the UK judges have adopted to say it can't be used as an alternative to pre-action disclosure, pre-action discovery. Um, so the, the, there are cases going back over some years. Uh, a more recent case in the last year or so says that you can have what's called mixed motives. So you can think, I want to correct the record and I might sue, and, and that seems to be permissible. But if uh, what's suggested is true, that this t Section 7 is, is a misapplication of EU law, then my gut feel is that governmental authorities uh, don't get that, um, that pass out, if you like. They don't get the, the benefit of that restriction. And, 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 and that will make a large difference. You know, the original case that, if you like, set the precedent for not using subject access requests as pre-action discovery was against a state uh, regulator. So um, I think they're particularly vulnerable because you know, obviously people who go to a regulator and complain don't feel they've had their grievance dealt with properly, generally turn on the regulator next. Um, so, so, so I think it's regulatory prosecutory authorities that, that, that perhaps have the biggest issue. Although equally they have some caveats when they may not need to respond to subject access requests. But as I say, I mean, I think you rightly state that people are trying to use it in a similar way to you would use pre-action discovery, and, um, and, 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 I, and I think we're already seeing some of that litigation culture crossing the Atlantic uh, and, and, and the subject access request being used for that. Yeah, well, fascinating. I think you're right. We'll be seeing more of this to come. Um, I just have two final words. Ashley Madison. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but this, this is Eric Sinrod. It's Dwayne Morris. Um, you can find me at ejsinrod at duanemorris.com. As you know, you can find us also at LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, etc., the usual social media outlets. We hope you continue to join us on this high-tech ride going forward. Um, I turn it over to Jonathan to say the final words. Well, thanks very much, and uh, happy wedding anniversary to Mr. and Mrs. Sinrod. And all that remains is to thank you for listening. We'll be back same time, same place, more or less, on iTunes, on the web, etc. next week. And thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.